thanks for being the kind of friend who will laugh during the eulogy at my funeral because you knew the real story. <laughs> I'm sure all, many of y'all have heard the story of, um, of when Bernie Arnold, before she died, there's a group of us that were the Yahyas, there were five of us counting, counting Bernie, and, and um, she said, when I die, I want you to wear red to my funeral. And Maxine called her a few days later and said, uh, Bernie, I don't look good in red. If it's okay, I'll wear pink. And, Ber and Bernie said, Maxine, it's not about you. <laughs> so we all lined up on the same pew with our red on, trust me. So. Bernie's not one you want to mess with even after she dies. So. Before we get started, let me... Um, uh, I don't know how many of y'all read obituaries, but that's one of the things I started doing a long time ago. I think I started doing it really uh, when I was doing, when I was working with hospices and now we'd kind of, you know, you're looking to see, does one of our patients die that I don't know about? So, uh, but I read, I, through the years I've read a lot of obituaries. Now I look at them in the Tennessean and the ones that are a half a page long, I think, boy, they must have a lot of money, you know, so if they're putting those kind of obituaries in the paper. But I looked at it, this has probably been 15 years ago. I was looking at obituaries, and there was one that was about two inches long, and I don't know why, but I, I read it. It was a man from Pleasant View, Tennessee. I, I cut it out. I had it up on a board for a long time, but I, it's not, it's, it has disappeared, so I don't know what happened to it. But, um, but in it, it gave his name. It said he was from Pleasant View, Tennessee, and it said services will be um, at a certain time. And then it said, and uh, Mr. Smith, would be remembered by the, by the words of Micah 6, uh, 8 and 9, or 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. I said, well, that, you know, if, if Mr. Whoever his name is, if that's the way he lived his life, I believe he did pretty well. So I just thought about that as we were getting ready for this class. I'm excited this morning. One of the things when we did our Survey Monkey, one of the, the top things that came out of that was that people wanted to know about legal issues, trust, wills, all of that good stuff. So I've asked Jay Adcox and Bill Lassiter to come and talk about that this morning. Both of these gentlemen are, are lawyers who have dealt, who deal with this on a daily basis, and we're going to turn it over to them and see what they have to say. So thank you. It's recorded. Age before beauty. <laughs> Speaking of obituaries, uh, I always look at obituaries because I want to be sure my name's not there. <laughs> A few years ago, uh, I was uh, waiting for some clients to come into my office. And uh, I told my receptionist to let me know when they got there. And she said, Mr. Laster said, uh, your elderly clients are here. And I'd never seen them before. And this was before I turned 80. And uh, they came back. I started talking to them. And I always ask people how old they are because that's part of... of, of, of estate planning, I think. And one of them said they, they were 73, and one said they were 72, and I realized at that time 
that I had suddenly gone from whatever it was to the elderly. <laughs> this morning I want to talk to you a little bit about some documents that I think are very important, especially at our age. And I think these documents are sometimes misunderstood. Uh, I've been doing this for over 50 years, and I find out that there are a lot of people that have lived a long time that don't, don't understand the difference between a will and a trust and, and a power of attorney and that sort of thing. And I'm going to try to make it as simple as possible today. And uh, I'm going to talk to you about a will. I'm going to talk to you about a trust. I'm going to talk to you about a power of attorney and especially a thing called five wishes. I'm going to talk to you about health care power of attorney. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit about a living will. First of all, I go back far enough in terms of drafting wills that I can remember the day when you didn't have to have a will notarized. A lot of people don't understand and think about that, but back in the early days, wills were just simply signed by individuals in the presence of two witnesses, and you didn't bring in a notary, and those wills required those two witnesses to come to court and to testify that they were there when the will was written and when and they saw the individual sign it and they believed that individual to be competent. Well, fortunately, in the last several years, that's no longer required. We have what is called a self proving will now in Tennessee. And you simply bring in a notary, and if the notary notarizes the signature of the witnesses and everything is done appropriately, then when you probate that will, those witnesses don't have to come to court. And that makes a huge difference in the difficulty and the cost of probating wills. I, can't, I just can't imagine how it would be now if you had to go back out and find, locate all those witnesses and bring them into court or get them to sign affidavits. And so that's, that's one thing that has made it so much easier to go through the probate uh, process. Let me talk a little bit about the probate process. It's pretty simple, and uh, in Tennessee, there is no what they call probate tax. There is no tax on the value of your estate. In other states, uh, uh, even some states adjoining us, there is a probate tax. And so you have to value everything you own and you have to pay a tax for the privilege of probating your will. Uh, 
In Tennessee, we've gotten to the point where it is so easy to probate a will that they have a special judge and he calls his docket the rocket docket. <laughs> so he can probate maybe 30 or 40 wills in one day. Uh, now, if the will's going to be contested, then you have to go before a real judge. But if the will is not contested, if it's just simple will that leaves everything to certain people and nobody's going to contest the will, then you can go into this rocket docket and you can be, be in and out in about three, four, five minutes. So if anyone tells you that you need a trust in Tennessee to avoid probate, there's a lot of that going on. You'll, you'll get advertisements in the mail to come and uh, have a free lunch and, and, and hear somebody tell you how to avoid probate. It is not that difficult to go through the probate uh, uh, procedure in Tennessee. So there are a lot of reasons to have a trust, but avoiding probate uh, is not always one of them. Now, what else is interesting about wills is the fact that you can have a holographic will. How many of you have heard of a holographic will? A holographic will is a will that's written entirely in your own handwriting and signed by you. Doesn't have to be notarized. Just have to have somebody at the probate uh, court when you go into probate court to testify that that is your handwriting. I'll I'll give you a little story about how this becomes fairly important. Several years ago, I got a phone call from a client uh, and his wife. And they said they were leaving the next morning on a three-week cruise, and they just had to have some changes made in their will. This was about 9 o'clock at night. I said, well, I only know of one way to do that, and you not miss your cruise in the morning. And that is, if you write it out in longhand and sign your name to it, that is a valid will in Tennessee. And since you want to make all these changes, what I'm going to do is tell you to get a paper and pen, and I'm going to dictate to you your wills. And we did that. And fortunately, they got back from the cruise, and then we did a real will. But a holographic will is a valid will in Tennessee. And anytime you feel like you want to put something on paper in terms of what you want at your death to happen, you don't have time to see a lawyer, you can do a holographic will. The main thing you need to do in a holographic will is just simply say, I want Jim Smith to be the executor of my will. I, I then want 
everything I have to be divided as follows. And you just put it down, what you want. You also need to put it down there, I don't want my executor to have to make a bond, and I don't want my executor to have to file an inventory, and I don't want my executor to have to find accountings. All that costs money, and if you can just waive that, then, then you can do a holographic will, and it will be very effective. <clears throat> I don't recommend holographic wills, or I'd be out of business. <laughs> but they are valid. Most people have a difficult time understanding the difference between a trust and a will. Sure. Can a holographic will be made as an addendum to your currently printed will? Like if I want to change something before I leave and okay. I don't have time to actually make a legitimate change. My opinion is that a holographic will, it can be in the form of a codicil to your will, and it can be valid. Uh, there may be some differences. What do you think? I think so. Something uh, I'd have to look at to be sure. Um. It's not a really clear-cut answer, uh, but... I think that that a, our court in Davidson County would probate a holographic codicil to your will, an amendment to your will. Yeah, I think so. And I haven't mentioned codicils, uh, and that's a good that's a good point because people sometimes get confused between wills and codicils. A codicil is just an amendment to your will, and. Uh, you can amend your will at any time as long as you're still competent. Uh, the codicil has to be uh, signed in the presence of two witnesses, uh, just like a will. And a lot of people will do codicils to their wills pretty often. Uh, and as we get older, we tend to change our minds pretty quickly. <laughs> the trust is a different document. And there are two kinds of trust. There's what we call a revocable trust and an irrevocable trust. Revocable just means it can be revoked. Irrevocable means it can't be revoked. But under some new laws that we have, you can make changes in an irrevocable trust where you used to couldn't do that. Uh, the, a trust is just simply a document that says if, if, if I am the what we call the grantor of the trust I can name whoever I want to to be a trustee and I can do this during my lifetime I can just simply say I the grantor name Jim McAllister as my trustee and I want Jim McAllister to do the following things. And then Jim is clothed with a fiduciary duty to act in the best interest of the beneficiaries. So we've got a grantor, we've got a trustee, and then we've got beneficiaries of that trust. 
You can do that and not have a will, and you can avoid probate. Because what you can do is you can say, okay, Jim, I'm going to put everything I have in my estate in trust with you, Jim, and upon my death, the trust will continue. And then Jim will, instead of following a will and the directions you give your executor in a will, you simply give those directions to Jim McAllister, and he will carry out the duties of an executor. He will carry out the duties of administering everything that should be done. It, it, it's, it's almost as good as a will if you want to avoid probate. Uh, and you can have a revocable uh, trust, and I say to Jim, Jim, I am giving you this in trust, but at any time I want to, while I'm still alive, I can revoke it. I can tell you I no longer want to have a trust. Or I can give it to Jim irrevocably and... If I want to revoke it, I've got to go through a lot of uh, procedures, sometimes in court, to get it revoked. The reason for an irrevocable trust, and Jay will probably tell you a little more about this, there's a thing called a spendthrift trust or a spendthrift provision. If you want to make sure that the beneficiaries don't throw away all their money that you give them, then you can put a spendthrift provision in your will. You can also put it in your trust. And it basically says that a creditor of your beneficiary cannot get to that money. So if, if you have put a provision in there and Jim is the trustee and you're telling Jim to pay your children off in, in monthly installments of so much money a month, uh, if you give him a broader authority to sprinkle it among your children, then their creditors can't get to it. So if you've got a child or even a friend or, or, or relative beneficiary that you think would not do a good job of taking care of that money, or you already know that that person has got the IRS is after him or some creditors are, are after him, he even has judgments against him, then you'd want to use a spendthrift trust. And that's a little more complicated, and I expect it that Jay will talk a little bit about that. Any questions on what we've talked about thus far? Which one trumps, a trust or a will? If, if, you, if the two are um, not saying the same thing, it's a trust. Okay. Trump, a if you have a will, you can put a trust inside the will. If you do that, 
then the trust doesn't come into existence until you're dead. Okay. If you have a trust and a will, the will is called a pour-over will. All your will says is about a two-page document. It just simply says, upon my death, I want to pour over everything that I have into the trust that I formed, where I've named Jim McAllister as trustee. Are there, are there tax advantages to trust? They used to be. Uh, right now, I would say, and Jay will address some of this, if your estate is, is, is above $11 million, then there are some advantages. If your state is under that, and even, even you and, and Fletcher together have $22 million that you can have before you have to pay any taxes. So is the only real advantage in a trust is that you get to control it longer? The advantage of a trust is the, the spendthrift provision I just talked about. And then secondly, you can keep things going after your death if you want to. Okay. Any other questions? Yes? What was that term you used? Rocket something? Else? The rocket docket. <laughs> okay. Would you give an idea approximately what that would cost or that judge? There is a cost. Right. There is a cost. I would say that <clears throat> the minimum cost of going through probate today is about $2,500. I would just, that's just a guess uh, based on my experience and what I charge. Nothing's free, is it? Nothing's free. That's right. That's right. So, how long does it take to actually get on the rocket docket? Well, if Jim McAllister has a will and he dies and uh, he has named his wife as the executor, then once she calls the lawyer, you can get on the rocket docket for in six, six, seven days. Real quick, real quick. Other questions? In a trust, if there's money distributed to your heirs, is that taxable like ordinary income to the, your heirs? Anything that, that you receive as a bequest, a distribution from your, from, from your will, there, there are no taxes on that unless you have more than $11 million. But to the person receiving? Yeah, that's what no, receiving. no tax. <coughs> Only tax would be if they're receiving income, then they've got to pay income tax. But that wouldn't be considered ordinary income. No, it would not. It would not. Other questions? This yes. This isn't a question, but uh, I'll tell you why my daddy made the trust. He made the trust so that the money would continue on to the grandchildren instead of just going helter-skelter, whatever was left was going to his grandchildren and not not to the spouses of his children. 
Right. A lot of people do that. Uh, it's just simply they want it to, to go as far as it can go down through the generations. Okay. Power of attorney. There are different kinds of powers of attorney. The main thing to remember about a power of attorney is it is only good as long as the person who has made the power of attorney is alive. And a lot of people will call me and say, well, I'm going to use the power of attorney uh, to pay the funeral expenses. Can't do that. Use the power of attorney only when the person is alive. It's called, it's called a durable general power of attorney. And if I name Jim McAllister to be my power of attorney, what I'm saying to Jim is that, number one, when I become incompetent uh, and I can't make decisions, then Jim can make the decisions for me. He can do everything I could do. Once I recover from that position, then I have, in effect, revoked the power, and then I can go ahead and act just like I always did. A power of attorney is revocable. That's the important thing to know. It is revocable. So if I decide Jim's not the right person for me, then I can revoke it. I need to tell him I've revoked it and then I can name someone else. Typically, in my practice, most couples name their spouses as their power of attorney. And I would recommend that you do that in most instances until or unless you've got a situation where your spouse is already handicapped or uh, are not able to, to, to really act then I would recommend you probably name one of your children. You got to be careful about that children stuff because sometimes if you name one child, you, you create problems. Uh, sometimes when you name two children and you just got two children, you create problems. Uh, I have the, the habit of, in my practice, if, if I name two people, I put a provision in there that some third party can resolve their differences so that you don't have to go to court. Okay, there are two kinds of powers of attorney. One kind is called a spring power of attorney. It springs into existence only when you have a doctor to say, this person is incompetent and cannot manage his own affairs. That's a spring power of attorney. 99% of the powers of attorney that I draw are not springing powers of attorney. Normally, uh, in my case, I've named my wife to, to be my power of attorney, and it's not a springing power of attorney. If I am in Tennessee, uh, 
let's say I'm in Texas and she's in Tennessee, and we need to do sell a piece of property or do something, and she needs my name, well, all she's got to do is to invoke her power of attorney, and any closing title company will accept that. Now, I always caution people that that there needs to be some communication from the person who is the maker of the power of attorney. So if I'm in Texas and my wife's in Tennessee, I would encourage the, the provision to say that, that I need to acknowledge that and consent that she's going to use my power of attorney. Doesn't have to be that way, but that that's what I usually recommend. Uh, looks like time's getting away from us here. There is a danger in a power of attorney that most people don't know about. And if I don't say anything else that you take home with you, if you are ever named as, as a power of attorney, and we call that attorney-in-fact. If you're named as an attorney-in-fact, and it's just a general power of attorney, you cannot make a transfer of any of the assets of the person that gave you that power to yourself. And most people don't know that. Most people think, well, I'm taking care of my mother and she's given me power of attorney and I think it's good, it's time for my sister and I to be paid, uh, uh, make a distribution. So you make a distribution to the sister and then make a distribution to yourself and you violated Tennessee law because you violated your fiduciary duty. Now, unless somebody objects to it, no harm, no foul. But think about this situation. You live in Tennessee. Your sister lives in California. Your mother lives in Tennessee, and you are taking care of her. And the sister in California is doing nothing except praying for you. So, so, so for five years, you don't do anything but take care of your mother. And the sister in California is making a good living. And your mother says, I want you to be paid for all the work you're doing. And so she pays you. Unless that's spelled out in the power of attorney, you can't do that. Even though it seems okay, it's just not allowed. Okay. Uh, last thing I want to talk about is a health care power of attorney. That's different from the power of attorney I've just talked about. The health care power of attorney 
is one that you would typically give your spouse or one of your children. It's not something that's confidential. It's something that every doctor, every hospital asks you if you have a health care power of attorney. And it just simply says that if I am not competent to make health care decisions for myself, then I name my wife or my husband or one of my children to do that for me. And any time that I am competent to make that decision, nobody can act for me. It's got to be when I can't act. There's a really good reason now for being careful about who you name as power of attorney for health care. In the olden days, everybody could just go to the doctor and get medical records and all that good stuff, talk to the doctor. No longer is that true. Uh, because of the privacy laws and HIPAA, we have to make sure that whoever is going to talk to the doctor or read those particular medical records has authority to do so. So you are giving authority to your health care power of attorney to actually talk to the doctor and get information from the doctor and see medical records of the person that you're acting as power of attorney for. The other document I want to talk about is the living will, and I want to mention something about that that, that uh, is, is included in this five wishes. Back when I started practicing law, the the health uh, the living will was a pretty simple document. It just simply said that that I don't want to be kept alive if I'm really in a vegetarian state. If I if 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 doctor has determined I'm terminally ill and what I want to be is I want to be kept comfortable and I want to uh, make sure that I'm not a burden on my family and I don't want to live just be hooked up to machines. About 10 years ago, a couple came up with a document called Five Wishes. And I think it's much better than just a simple power of attorney, I mean living will. My wish for the person I want to make care decisions for me when I can't. The kind of medical treatment I want or don't want. How comfortable I want to be. How I want people to treat me. What I want my loved ones to know. So you can take this document, it's available to everyone, and Paulette will get I'm you a copy. Yeah. So I'll have them here in two okay. minutes. You just fill out the document. And you don't do a living will anymore. Or if you've already done a living will, this is a substitute for your living will. 
and it's valid in Tennessee, and it's valid in almost all the other states. They've, they've actually passed a law to make it valid. And I recommend it because it allows you to say some things that a form won't allow, allow you to say. I'll leave you with one little tidbit. As I say, I've been doing this for a long, long time. And so I've seen about everything you want to see. And I was working with a lady not too long ago. And I said, do you have any special request to put in your living will? And she said, I just got one. I want a radio. <laughs> Well, I hadn't either until then. Thanks, Bill. Um, I'm going to try to take sort of the basis of what Bill has given us. Okay, erase. Okay, erase the scripture. Uh, That's one we used a couple of weeks ago. So. Oh, is it? It can go? Okay. Yeah, you can go. All right. Somebody didn't trace it. Um, what is our time? We've only got, we've got about 10 minutes. Okay. Sorry. That's okay. Talk so, fast. what's that? Talk fast. I will try to do that. So, I'm real visual. Um, I'm going to try to bring together some of the things that, that Bill introduced and introduce a couple of new things. But, um, you know, we talked about from the standpoint of planning for disability or incapacity, there's a set of documents that we want to make sure you've got. You want to make sure you've got. There were, I'm going to abbreviate some of those. There was the financial power of attorney, uh, durable power of attorney that we talked about. There was a health care power of attorney. There was a living will or the five wishes document, which actually, as I, as I look at that document, I really like it too. He's, he had seen it a little more, I think, the past than I have. I think this iteration of it actually combines the, the health care power and the living will into that single document, which is, which is great. And then we do, we want to make sure you've got a HIPAA authorization. Now, Bill mentioned HIPAA. You can do a freestanding HIPAA authorization to make sure that the people you want to have access to medical information will have it, regardless of whether you're at a new physician, you know, that you may not have given that indication to, et cetera. So those are sort of the healthcare-related documents. Um, in planning for death, Bill outlined and, and really helped define really well, you know, there's really, at least at the start, there's two options, okay? Um, irrevocable trust can come in for various reasons, but, but really I think when you're planning for death, you're either going to have a will-based plan or you're going to have a trust-based plan. And, and I think the starting place for that is a revocable living trust. So that is a trust that you can amend, change, revoke, do anything you want. And as Bill mentioned, in, in, in thinking about these things, the primary consideration here is probate. 
you know, are we going to go through the probate court process um, to get things where we want it to go? That's that's the question. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of different considerations there. If you own multiple property in multiple states, you'd be in probate in multiple states. Um, we talked, you know, he talked about the, the financial power of attorney. The revocable trust is actually a benefit and incapacity as well, because while uh, most title agents, as, as Bill mentioned, will accept a financial power of attorney, a lot of your financial institutions anymore will not. There's a real risk that a financial power of attorney may not be accepted. Um, there are actually some states that have come in and passed laws that they have to, but Tennessee's not one of those, and we run into that frequently. So, the other advantage of a revocable trust can be that if you have a revocable trust that owns your assets during your life, at incapacity, your agent, your, your, your successor trustee at incapacity will have access to those funds to the financial institution. The financial institution can't tell a trustee of a trust they can't have access to trust property. Whereas they can tell a financial, uh, an attorney in fact, that they can't have access to your property while you're incapacitated, unfortunately. So trust can have advantages both at incapacity and at death. Um, to keep it moving, if we, were to, if we were to visually illustrate that decision, again, sort of a will or trust as the centerpiece of the plan, um, abbreviate revocable living trust. As Bill pointed out, when you, when you use a trust as the centerpiece of your plan, um, you still need a will. Uh, we call that a pour over will. It just simply says, I leave everything to my trust. And really, um, the main purpose of that will is just to clean up anything that you might have not already uh, coordinated with your trust. Because for a trust to do its job of avoiding probate, at least, if that's one of your goals, um, everything has to be coordinated with it. So that the assets are either owned by the trust during life, or for things like life insurance or retirement plans, etc., they've got to either be owned by the trust or beneficiary designated to the trust if we want them to flow through the trust. So, um, that is sort of the decision point for most people um, in terms of how you structure your estate plan as, as a starting place. We also talked about, and several of you mentioned, the idea of ongoing trusts, right? This is really just about, are we going to probate or not? Um, then there's the decision at a person's passing, how am I leaving it to my children or my grandchildren or whomever my beneficiaries are? Well. There's really three ways, I think, to think about doing that, um, broadly speaking. Um, and then I think, you know, within that, you can go different directions. But um, you can leave it outright to your beneficiaries, which means you're giving them 100% ownership right now. Here you go. Right? Well, the risks associated with that. are one, control. Is that good for them? Right? Are they, you know, we want to leave it in such a way that's a blessing and not a curse. So maybe it is. Maybe they're mature and fully capable of managing their inheritance in a way that's good for them. But if, if it's not, this doesn't do anything to address that issue, right? Um, someone with addiction issues, someone with other issues, you know, could be bad for them actually. So. 
that's a consideration. Or they're minors, you know, they're not capable yet of managing their inheritance. So that's one risk. But even outside of that, even if you've got beneficiaries that you feel can manage their inheritance, other risk of an outright distribution, as Bill mentioned, predators, um, lawsuits that they might be facing, or judgments, creditors, um, uh, if they were to go through a failed business or bankruptcy, and then a big one, I don't know if y'all can still see this, divorce. A consideration is, am I leaving an inheritance to my child only for them to lose half of that in a failed marriage? It may not be of their own making, right? And so those are just, those are just things to consider as you think about how you leave things. The second method is what we usually use for minor children. It's what I would call a sprinkle trust or delayed distribution, where we know we need a trustee to manage it for them, at least for a while, because they're minors or they're young adults, they're just not quite ready to manage their own inheritance yet. But we know eventually we want them to manage their own inheritance. It's not a forever trust. So often you'll see something like, and you, you, some of you in the room may have this, you know, um, I named so-and-so to be their trustee while they're young, but maybe I'll give them a third of it uh, when they're 30, maybe a third when they're 35. I'm just picking some random ages here. And maybe I'll give them the remainder when they're 40. So the trustee is tasked with managing those assets for them during this time period, but sprinkling it out to them as they mature so that it's still protected while it's in trust from all these other risks. Um, I think the good news is that none of us are old enough to be able to do that. There you go. There you go. Good job. And then the third option is, is an ongoing trust, right? Where not only are we going to make sure that they have a third party, well, an ongoing trust just protects it for their lifetime. And, as somebody pointed out, ensures that it carries on to that next generation as well. Um, so with an ongoing trust, you're able to protect it for your children and grandchildren from divorce, creditors, bankruptcy, all those types of things going forward. And yet, with the third type of trust, you know, I think in the old days, most people thought about a trust as always having a third party trustee maybe even a bank or a trust department. Well, mm -hmm. our laws have really developed, particularly here in Tennessee, to the point where you can name your child, for instance, as their own trustee in this case. Sometimes we'll use a co-trustee or somebody with them, but they, they can actually be their own trustee and still have this ongoing protection. So it's, it's, there's a lot of flexibility that you can have through use of ongoing trusts. So if we were to try to bring this sort of back up into the bigger picture, um, in a marital situation where we're talking about a couple, you know, this dotted line represents what happens at the first death, right? So typically spouses are leaving it to each other or largely to each other. Um, there becomes a question even in that, am I going to leave it to my spouse outright? Or am I going to leave it to my spouse in what becomes an irrevocable trust at the first death? So they may have, you may have a revocable trust where typically, in Tennessee now you can do joint trusts, 
um, where the trustee during life are you, right? You, you and your spouse. You're your own trustee, nobody else involved, etc. during life. Then you have the decision at the first death, am I going to leave it outright to each other, or are we going to use a trust? So why would you use a trust there? Well, without having much time to... One reason would be to ensure, as Bill pointed out, that if you have an excess of $11 million estate, you want to use both spouses' exemptions. So without getting... I have a way to explain that, I think, that would make sense, but I don't think we have time. The bottom line is we will use a trust at times to make sure we're getting both spouses' exemptions. Um, the other reason is that there's protection that goes on here, just as we described for children, right? If you leave to your spouse in an irrevocable trust um, at their death, even though they could be the trustee of that trust, so the surviving spouse could be trustee and then fully in charge of it. But if it's left to them in trust, it is protected <coughs> against their remarriage scenario, right? So we probably all know a situation where um, a surviving spouse remarries and the inheritance that that person accumulated with their previous spouse does not end up with their children. Anybody? We probably all know, you know, somebody that that's happened to. I maintain that often that's not intentional. Um, maybe sometimes it is. But if a couple's intent is, of course we want to leave everything for each other, but we also want to agree now that what we've built together makes it to our children. Um, there's some protection that occurs by considering leaving it to each other in trust. Um, so that you're, you're actually protecting the surviving spouse. You know, it's, it becomes asset protection for the surviving spouse themselves, but it's also what I would call family line protection because we're agreeing now that of course we're leaving it for each other, but we'd like to agree that ultimately it's going to the children and not to a future spouse. Tennessee law would say actually that the longer you're married to a future spouse, the more rights they have to your estate. So this is protecting against that sort of thing. And then if this second dotted line represents what happens at the second death, then again, this is where often we'll use this third type of trust or some version of a trust. Say someone has two children. My, I, I, in my experience, adult children don't share well. So I think they need their own trusts, right? Most of the time we're not trying to tie our children's future financial interests together. Could be exceptions for that. You've got a family lake house, family cottage, even family business, you may you may tie them together in some way. But, but often we're wanting to you know, leave them that share of their, our estate and let them let them move on that way. And so we typically end up with separate trust for each of them. But there is protection for them if it makes sense, um, even in a situation where they can be their own trustee going forward. And it can pass to future generations in that way. I hope that's helpful. Um, <laughs> That was pretty quick. <laughs> Any questions? I think we're probably done. <laughs>
Captain Jake, thank y'all so much. I think you may be hearing from some people because I suspect there are lots of questions, but thank you so much.